I was thinking during the week about uh, what it must have been like for Jesus growing up, hearing his birth story told over and over. Because all of us have that experience. Most of us would have been told the circumstances around our birth when we were born, what was going on and all the things that happened. Uh, we love to tell the story about how Rachel was born, that we were at uh, an evening service in the church that we were in. And because we knew Rachel was imminent and about to arrive, uh, I had rostered myself off, fortunately, but I was sitting down near the front. And so about halfway through the service, I get this little tap on my shoulder from one of our friends who says, Ali's water's just broke. <laughs> so we kind of rushed home and grabbed the bags and then went to the hospital and Rachel was born a couple of hours later. So it was a very dramatic set of circumstances, but nothing that quite measures up with the story of Jesus' birth. And so I wonder what it must have been like for him and for his family growing up where they talked about all of these things that happened around his arrival. And in particular, you have to wonder, particularly for Mary, we have a little bit of understanding about some of the things that she processed, but for her, as she wrestles with these angels coming and telling her this is the stuff that's going to happen and her expectations about what's going to go on, and then the circumstances of Jesus' birth where he's born in this little tiny shed, you wouldn't have thought that's probably where things were going to end up, and then they have to escape to Egypt and all the things that go on. You have to wonder what were her expectations as she saw Jesus grow up. This expectation about this newborn king who is going to come and establish a new kingdom. And so that's what we're focused on with this series that we're doing in the lead up to Christmas. We're taking some time to talk about the expectations that were around about Jesus coming to establish God's kingdom here on earth. And so we've spent a couple of weeks talking about some different versions of what that looks like. The first week when we talked about hope, we talked about how we can understand this kingdom being like God's dream. A sense of being able to understand God's dream for humanity, God's dream for life the way that it's supposed to be. Last week we spent some time talking about how God's kingdom is kind of like a welcome home party where there's this amazing sense of people being restored, this amazing sense of the best version of what family is supposed to be, this amazing sense of unfathomable love that is a part of what God's kingdom is all about. And so today we're going to have another look at a different picture of what the kingdom is like as well. So inside of Caring Connection, you have your teaching notes, and so you can feel free to jot things down as we go through today's message if that's helpful for you. We're looking at Jesus' parables as we go through this series. Uh, Jesus told these amazing stories called parables, which were really amazing stories on their own, but then had these incredible layered meanings underneath them as you understand more and more about the context of what's going on. And Jesus used these parables to help us understand what this kingdom is like what the kingdom is that he came to establish here on earth. And so today, as we look at this theme of joy, we're going to have a look at another one of Jesus' parables, which is also fairly controversial following on from the one we looked at last week. So the context for this parable is that Jesus is having a feast at the house of one of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees were the Jewish leaders of the time and uh, they had an interesting relationship with Jesus because of their expectations partly about this kingdom that God was going to establish. And so Jesus is spending time at the house of one of the Pharisees one of these days eating together when all of a sudden a man comes to him who's got some very significant health issues. He's got really swollen arms and really swollen legs and so he's come to Jesus to ask to be healed. 
Now, the controversial part is that the day when this happened is a Sabbath day, which is a day of rest for anyone who is Jewish. And so there was lots of curiosity from the other people who were at this feast about the ways in which Jesus was going to respond. Was he going to break the Sabbath laws and do something that was classed as working on the Sabbath, which would have been seen as really naughty thing to do? Or was he going to heal this man, which Jesus had spent a lot of time doing with lots and lots of other people? And so Jesus can probably hear that there's a little bit of chatter going on around the room. You can imagine people talking to each other. What's he going to do? What do you think he's going to do? Do you think he'll hear? What do you think he's going to do? And so Jesus challenges the people listening to say, if one of your kids fell into a hole on a Sabbath day, would you pull them out of that hole? Or if one of your farm animals that you needed fell into a hole on a Sabbath day, would you just leave them there or would you pull them out? And this is one of the things that Jesus was really exceptional at being able to do. Ask these amazingly profound questions and just kind of leave it with people. And so they were a little bit stuck here because they're really wrestling with a key thing that Jesus focused on a lot, which is the difference between love and law. Jesus really challenged some of the religious laws that were around, saying our emphasis should not be on trying to obey the rules. Our emphasis should be on what is the most loving thing to do in any given situation. So he's really challenging them about that to say, well, if this was your kid who was stuck in a hole, would you follow the law or would you do the most loving thing? And so these people know that they're kind of trapped here because if they answer and say, well, obviously we would pull our child out of the hole, then he would say, well, why would we not heal people on a Sabbath? Because that's setting them free, restoring them. So surely that's an appropriate thing to do. But they also know that if they say, no, we would just leave our kid there overnight and hope that they're okay the next day, <laughs> or we would leave our farm animal in the hole and hope that it all works out, that that's a ridiculous thing to say. So none of them answer Jesus. Jesus then noticed that people were starting to move around the table and jostling to try and get into the positions of most authority or sitting next to the right people. And so Jesus then challenges them about how embarrassing it would be to go to a meal and to seat yourself at one of the high positions and then be told, uh, actually, that was reserved for someone else. Your seat's down the end of the table down there. It's kind of an embarrassing thing that would happen. And so Jesus challenges them to say, rather than self-promoting, how about you make a decision to kind of sit down the end of the table and then if you're supposed to be called up, then that will happen to you. But don't push yourself to the front of the line. Jesus then follows this up by challenging the host of the feast to say, don't just invite people over who you know are going to be able to do things in return for you. So when you invite people to your house, don't just invite other people over who you know you're going to get an invite back to their place next week, but instead invite the people around you who are struggling, the people around you who are hurting, the people who are on the fringes, the people who are on the margins, people who you know there's no chance that you're going to get anything in return because when you do, you know you're going to get a much richer reward because you're living out kingdom values. So that's the context in which Jesus tells this story. And it's really important for us to understand all of those dynamics, all of those things that Jesus has just challenged. Are we focused on the law or are we focused on the most loving thing to do? Are we focused on trying to have the best seat at the table are we focused on only doing things for other people if they can do something in return for us? 
So that's where we pick up our reading today. Luke chapter 14, verse 15, which says, When one of the guests sitting at the table heard this, he said to Jesus, How happy are those who will sit down at the feast in the kingdom of God? And so one of the guests says, This is awesome, Jesus. This sounds really, really amazing. I love what you're talking about. That sounds great to be able to be in a place, this kingdom idea, where everyone's equal, no one's better than anyone else, where people don't do things just for other people so they'll get something in return. This sense where we're focused on the most loving things to do. That sounds really, really fantastic. I love it. And that's the sense of joy that we're trying to unpack as we work our way through today's service. This amazing good news that Jesus has come into our world, that Jesus has become one of us, that Jesus was born to establish a new kingdom that's filled with equality, filled with humility, filled with a sense of what the most loving thing is to do, especially for those who are on the margins and the fringes. So Jesus then tells this parable to say, it's great that you're responding that way, but not everyone else does. Verse 16, Jesus said, There was once a man who was giving a great feast to which he invited many people. When it was time for the feast, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, everything is ready. So this was pretty standard practice, and we have followed that in our lives as well, where a few weeks before you're going to have a dinner party, you send out some invites to the people around you. Now, in Jesus' day, that would be a servant who would literally go and knock on the doors of all the people around and say, save the date. On this date, we're going to have a great feast, so I hope that you can make yourself available and come along. So all these people are really, really excited about the idea of being able to come along. And then on the day of the feast that servant would then go back to everyone's house to say, the food's ready, everything's done, so come on over. The feast is about to start. Sounds great, right? Everyone would be thrilled. They'd all be excited about the idea of coming along to have a good feed. Everyone's ready to go. They've been told weeks in advance. That's what their response is? No. They all began, one after another, to make excuses. The first one told the servant, I've bought a field and I must go and look at it. Please accept my apologies. Another one said, I've bought five pairs of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please accept my apologies. Another one said, I've just gotten married and for that reason I cannot come. So when the servant goes to tell all these people the food's ready, all of them start making excuses. And Jesus intentionally shows that most of these excuses really don't make a lot of sense and are pretty flimsy excuses when you look at them. The first one says, I've bought a field and so I have to go and have a look at it. Most people would understand this was actually the context probably bought a farm, but it doesn't make any sense. You've already bought the house, so why are you going back to have another look at it? It's like, I just bought it, but I'm just going to go and check it out again, just to make sure it's all still there. It doesn't make any sense. He's not going to look at it to think about buying it. He's already bought it. Why does he need to go back and have another look? The second one's even more bizarre. I bought some ox, and I want to take them out for a spin. So this is kind of like, I bought a new car, and so now I'm going to take it for a test drive. No, that doesn't make any sense either. You would have done all of that. You would have made sure that the oxen were good quality oxen before you laid the money down and said, I'm going to buy these. So again, a pretty weak excuse. The third one, I got married. Might seem like it's a pretty good excuse, but there's some other things that are going on below the surface with this. In Jesus' day, if you got married, then you were exempt from military service for a period of one year. So there was an understanding, you got married, we're not going to send you off to war, you'll at least get one year with your spouse, 
and then we'll send you off to war. But you had that year that was there as well. So really what Jesus is trying to say in this person's excuse is, actually, I'm exempt from any obligations. I don't have to come along to your feast because I've got this married ring thing and so I'm exempt for 12 months. So thanks, but no thanks. Not going to worry about coming to this thing that I have to come along to. So it's interesting because Jesus is challenging, challenging the people who are listening that all of these excuses are not necessarily bad things. None of these people are doing bad things, but they're all pretty weak excuses. And at the end of the day, what they're doing is just saying, this is more important than me coming along to the feast. This thing, even though it's fairly insignificant, is actually more important than what it is that you're offering. So it's a really, really good challenge for us about the sorts of things that we sometimes make excuses about or the things that we sometimes put off because other things end up happening in our life. The times when we were going to give someone a call or send someone a text message or go out for a coffee with someone who we know was in need but we just didn't get around to it because there was other things happening. The times when we think, I know I'm going to prioritise and make sure that I spend some time with God. I'm going to take some time to read my Bible. I'm going to take some time to spend some time in prayer but then other stuff gets in the way. We just never get around to it. Prioritising even being together, coming along to our Sunday gatherings, coming along to things like our Wednesday dinners. I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it. Then some other stuff comes along and gets in the way. And none of this is meant to be judgmental. Sometimes we have very valid excuses for the reasons that we can't do things, and that's totally fine. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that sometimes we do just make excuses about not making the most important things the most important things. Sometimes other stuff just kind of gets in the way and stops us from prioritising what we really want to do. And we have to recognise that any time that we say yes to something, we're automatically saying no to a whole bunch of other things. So we have to be really diligent about being wise about the choices that we make. There's a phrase that I've used for a fair while, which is that it's helpful to say no to what is good so that we can say yes to what is best. Sometimes we have to say no even to good things because we recognise that there are God's best things in front of us that we want to be able to say yes to. And so we have to learn to be able to say no to things, even though they might not be bad things, but to say no to the things that are going to get in the way of the things that we want to prioritise, the things that we know are the most important in our life. So, what does this man who's throwing this feast do in the parable? Does he give up, close the doors, throw all the food in the garbage? No, not at all. In verse 21, the servant comes back and told all this to his master. The master was furious and said to his servant, hurry out to the streets and the alleys of the town and bring back the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Now, we have to be careful here about what we project into the parable and particularly how we might then project things onto God, particularly when we read pretty heated words like the word furious. So really what this guy is saying is, are you kidding me? This righteous indignation. Like I told you weeks ago that we were going to have this feast. Seriously, no one wants to come along? All of These are the excuses that people have got to not come along to my feast? Really? Are you kidding? That's what's going on there. So he says to his servant, well, go out into the streets and alleys. Go out into the main streets and the back streets and find anyone that you can. People who are hurting, people who are broken, people who are struggling, just anyone that you can find anywhere, invite them to come along to the feast. 
And so this is exactly what Jesus had been saying earlier when he was talking to everyone about who do you invite along to your feast. When you throw a feast, don't do it for people who don't really care, who aren't really going to come along anyway, aren't really that interested, who may or may not be able to repay you. But instead, throw a feast for people who will be amazed and excited to be invited along. People who will be filled with joy at the opportunity to come and be a part of the feast. Well, verse 22, seeing the servant said, Your order's been carried out, sir, but there's room for more. So the master said to the servant, Go out to the country roads and lanes and make people come in so that my house will be full. I tell you that none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. So he sends the servant out again and he says, go and find anyone that you can. There's still room, there's still plenty of food. So go further, not just in the town, but go out into the regional areas and go and find anyone who might be out there. Particularly what's being said here is that there were lots of people who worked on farms and in vineyards who didn't have homes. And so they would often sleep next to hedges or anywhere that they could. And so this man is saying, go and find those people, people who are homeless, people who really don't have anywhere that they belong, and invite them to come along to this feast as well. Anyone who's looking for a feed, tell them to come because there's plenty to go around. So as with all parables, there's a really, really great story, but there's a lot that's going on behind the scene. What Jesus is trying to communicate with this story is that God has given people lots and lots of opportunities to come along to his feast, especially the Israelite nation. For centuries and centuries and centuries, God has tried to help them understand what it looks like to live out God's dream, to be a part of God's original design, to live in a full, complete relationship with God, with the people around us and with creation. For centuries, God's tried to work with the Israelites to say, the feast is ready, come on in, it's all getting organised. And Jesus' arrival, as we talked about last week, is when the feast really begins. It's effectively that servant going out the second time to say, all the food's ready, it's on the table, come on over. But instead of welcoming Jesus with joy, instead of being excited about the fact that the feast has started, the Israelites, especially the Jewish leaders, continue to make all of these excuses about why they don't want to come and be a part of it. And so we have to be careful here that we don't read into this, that Jesus is saying they're out and they're excluded because they rejected the invitation. That's sometimes how we can read this parable, to say, well, people had their chance and they missed out, so no way can they come to the party. We have to remember that these people chose to walk away from the party. The invitation was there. They were welcome to come along. They made their own excuses about why they didn't want to be there. They chose to walk away from the feast, not the doors were closed in their face. But God's heart is not to give up. God's heart is to say, there are so many others who would love to come and be a part of this. So if the first lot who were invited don't want to come, throw the doors open and invite anyone in, regardless of their background, regardless of what's been going on for them. Let them all come. And in particular, what Jesus is focusing in on here is that this isn't something that's just for the Israelites. This is for Jewish and non-Jewish Gentile people, that the feast has been thrown and everybody is invited. So go out and tell the world, you're invited to the feast. The food's on the table. It's ready to eat. Come on in. And there is always more room. 
There's never a time when the seats are full. There's never a time when the food starts to run out. There's always plenty to go around. That's what the kingdom is like. That's what this kingdom that Jesus came to establish is like. This sense of joy at an amazing feast that's been prepared and laid out for everyone to be able to eat. Gathering together with people from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different stories. Eating together, laughing together, celebrating together. That's what the kingdom that Jesus comes to establish is like. So as we wrap up our message today, I'm going to use the same reflection question we're using throughout this series. How does the king of joy reshape my expectations? Throughout this series, we're talking about the idea of Jesus' kingship and saying, well, if Jesus comes as the newborn king, how does him coming as the king of, whatever the theme is, reshape my expectation? So how does him coming as the king of joy reshape my expectations? If I recognise that everything is prepared, that everything is ready, that the food is on the table, that the feast is laid out, that there's a seat at the table for me. If I recognise that the invitation has been given to me, someone's come and said, you are invited along to the feast. You are welcome. It doesn't matter about your background. It doesn't matter what you have or what you don't have. You are invited along. It's not about trying to be able to pay Jesus back for all that he's done. There's no sense of, well, if you come, you better make sure you invite Jesus over for a meal as well. If we understand all of that, what does it look like for us to enjoy and embrace Jesus' generosity towards us? And so in some ways, we're left with a similar question that we had last week. What does it look like for us to choose to enter into the feast? We've been welcomed. We've been invited. So will we choose to go in. But this week the challenge is more about what our response is in terms of do we respond with a sense of joy? Are we excited to say this feast has been laid out? I can't believe I've been invited along to this. How great is it going to be? I can't wait to be there. Is that our response? Or is our response to say, ah, I've got other stuff that's going on. I've got a house I need to go and look at again. I need to buy a new car. I just got married. I've got other obligations. There's other stuff that's in the way. Have we got other priorities or other distractions that get in the way of us being able to experience this dream, this kingdom, this feast, this welcome home party that has been thrown for us to participate in? As we head into this week, what's our response? And as we head towards Christmas, what's our response? Do we celebrate with joy and excitement at what we've been invited into? Or do we let other things get in the way? It's a good thing for us to process as we head into another week. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for how amazing it is, this kingdom that you came to establish. Thank you for how incredible it is that you use all of these different stories, all of these different parables to show us just how incredible everything you've done for us is. We thank you for these beautiful images that you give us, pictures of being able to be a part of a feast, of being invited in, of being a part of a party where there's equality, where there's humility, where there's a sense of serving one another, where there's a sense of no one thinking of themselves as better or worse than anyone else. 
Well, there's a sense of being welcomed in, not because of what we have to offer, but just because you want us to be there to celebrate with you. We thank you that that's such a beautiful picture for us. So my prayer is that as we head into this week, you would continue to stir in us a sense of joy about what it looks like to recognise that your kingdom has come through your birth, your life, your death and your resurrection. Your kingdom has been established. The dream is something that's available to us in the here and now. Yes, it's something that we'll get to experience for eternity, but we don't have to wait. So as we go into this week, I pray that you would continue to challenge us about our sense of excitement, about participating in the amazing feast that you've laid on for us. In your name we pray. Amen.